Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm really excited to be talking to Aisha Dadi Patel. Aisha holds an MA in Media Studies from WITS, where she also lectures part-time. She began her career as a journalist at just 20 years old with the Daily Vox and has made a huge mark on the South African media landscape, covering everything from politics to polar bears. She's currently on the Wall Street Journal's Africa desk, covering current affairs and economic updates from the continent. Her piece in Feminism Is is called Feminism Is Muslim Women Talking Back. In that piece, she says, In any intersectional context, the main thing to remember is that your struggles certainly do not have to be validated. Your anger is justified. You have the right to speak up for yourself against your own oppression and voice your own opinion on your own struggle, just as you are allowed to be an ally in any other struggle. You are the one responsible for controlling your own narrative. The piece explores how Western feminism and Islamophobia have contributed to the silencing of Muslim women and Muslim feminists, and the way in which Muslim feminists have challenged these two worldviews. Since the collection came out in 2018, Aisha has continued to challenge stereotypes and to tell stories about economic equality and current affairs. Welcome, Aisha. Thank you so much, Jen. As you can hear, I'm super excited to be talking to you. Um, so nice, so nice that you're doing this project. Mm. So it's been a while since we've talked. The Feminism Is collection came out in 2018. So for listeners who may not be familiar, can you tell us about what you mean by Muslim feminism and what the main differences are for you between Muslim feminism and liberal feminism? You know, Jen, like you say, the the piece came out so long ago and people probably also don't realize through the publication process and everything, the piece itself had been written maybe a year prior to that. It's easy to look back and wonder, are the things that I wrote then still relevant now? Was I young and foolish when I wrote what I wrote? And in preparation for this, when I looked at the piece again, it's clearer than ever to me that it is definitely something that's discussing such timeless ideals. I think normative ideas of feminism exist as uh as as this single idea of a call for equality um there isn't always a discussion of the difference of people who are the stakeholders in this equality that is being sought there isn't always a recognition of the complexity of the people who exist in the world and who would also like for this movement to be something that can advocate for them my personal definition of of muslim feminism then is something that stands kind of polar to those liberal and normative understandings of feminism as we know it so it's kind of a a branch of a branch. And I, the reason that why I say that is because branching off from liberal f- feminism, we have intersectional feminisms or, or more equitable forms of feminism where people have recognized these differences, where people have recognized these complexities. And one branch of that is, is the one that I'm speaking about or the one that I 
feel as passionately about as I do because it relates to my own lived experience. Ultimately, it's just about realizing that Muslim women have power, Muslim women have rights accorded to them, Muslim women have the right to be able to advocate for themselves and to be granted all of these rights and to be treated as equal citizens in the world. It's ultimately for me about realizing that and ultimately about understanding that Muslim women don't need to ask for anything. You note in your piece that Muslim feminism has previously been conflated with really harmful perceptions of Islam as wholly patriarchal. And in your piece, you say Islam is often automatically perceived as a patriarchal and oppressive space for women. And you critique this knee-jerk reaction by explaining that Muslim women are not a homogenous group and they don't. One of the quotes you give is Muslim woman does not equal brown veiled woman, which I think should be an obvious point to make. But some of the examples in your piece show that it's not. Can you explain why it was why you felt it was so um, um, important to unpack this idea? I think, you know, Jen, with so many things in the world, our first encounter of them is through the media. And I'm lucky in the sense that I'm someone who has studied the media extensively because of a severe passion for it. And now I, I work full time in the media. And it's easy to see from a behind-the-scenes perspective how narratives become so quickly normalized through the media. Of course, it makes sense that things are going to inform your perceptions because they are the things that you see all the time. Of course, it makes sense that if you Google a certain term and you're presented with a certain image in response to that, that that is what you're going to perceive the thing to be if you don't have any other reference point for it. Because, I mean... People don't always, maybe people who are unfamiliar with Muslim women don't always know how to go about finding some to have a conversation with. And, you know, if that's someone who's listening to this and you want to know more about Muslim women and you want to talk to a Muslim woman, please feel free to reach out to me and many of my peers would be happy to talk to you. Because media informs this perspective, a lot of the time media relies on normative ideas and media itself has constructed these ideas and and it's it's not new constructions it's constructions that come from years and years of history which has um again presented this very simplified idea of here is western woman and it's really damaging that that is the the binary that exists firstly and then further that that is the the thing that um is said to be the presentation or representation rather of all Muslim women, that you think that Muslim women only look a certain way. And that is where kind of, I think, a lot of prejudice stems from. I think when you see things like that, it's very evocative of ideas of terrorism and of this threat to to society and threat to peace. And that is why people make these kind of very automatic associations. And people don't always realize, and I'm going to use my favorite word again here, complexity. People don't always realize the complexity of Muslim women. People don't realize that you get Muslim women who look very different to your idea of Muslim women. You get Muslim women who look similar to your idea of Muslim women. You get women, Muslim women who look exactly like your idea of Muslim women. And yet, are people who are educated and who 
and that you get Muslim women across the board who are living their lives as they please because there's nothing that is stopping them from doing so. And at the same time, you get Muslim women who are oppressed and who are not living as they should be because of oppressive structures within, sometimes within their own homes, who have taken away their agency from them or attempted to take away their agency from them and try and distort what Islamically Muslim women are 100% allowed to do. There's so much that you've just brought up. There's many women all over the world who are oppressed regardless of their religion. The important thing to note here as an analytical tool is that often women of color are, a single woman of color is required to represent her whole group that she's supposed to Mm -hmm. represent. So one Muslim oppressed woman that someone has seen on the news is now all Muslim oppressed women. And that, that, Typecasting and stereotyping is not similarly applied to white people. So even if you you know go back to the harmful idea that you brought up about you know Muslim terrorism in America, for example, many of the terrorists are white men. If you look at school shootings, if you look at all of these the um, police brutality that we're seeing in the news at the moment, those are white men. And yet, it's, we don't say all white men are terrorists mm-hmm. or murderers or violent. So I think it's really important to to unpack the historical racism that you've mentioned there, that it is for certain reasons that the media goes back to those tropes is because one person of color is seen as representing all people of color, whereas one white person is not seen as representing all white people. And we really need to cut through that type of nonsense if we're able to unpack what freedom means for different people. Mm-hmm. No, completely, Jen. And I think, you know, it, it stems from these ideas we we know from from Edward Said's work, right, from Orientalism, which tells us about this idea of otherness, which tells us about this fetishized idea that we sometimes have about people who are different to us and this fascination we have and this fascination that then gives rise to really damaging thoughts and stereotypes and and ways in which we view the world because what we should ultimately then be critiquing is why are we viewing this thing as an other and i mean i want to just pick up on the point you made of um you know, the burden of representation. And so, I mean, I cover, I cover, I observe hijab by wearing a headscarf. And um, I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine who also, who also covers in the same way. And we were talking about how it is so tiring that we have this burden of representation. Because, I mean, I know the reasons why I observe hijab, right? Why I wear a headscarf. A lot of the time, um, people will assume it's because either I've been forced into it or because people who don't know me will assume that I'm married and therefore I'm wearing it. I'm not married, by the way. And all of those are emphatically untrue. I wear it. I've been wearing it for almost 10 years now because quite simply in the Quran, which is the religious book of Muslims, it's ordained for Muslim women to dress a certain way and to cover certain parts of their body. And so I don't look for further further rationale or further um, reasons to justify why or why not. I just say that I, I make the personal choice to, to cover up in accordance with this thing. And just because I make the choice to does not mean that women who, do, who make the choice not to 
are less than me or, or worse people than me or less good Muslims than I am. Because, you know, ultimately, within, as, as with any religion or any follower of any religion, as humans, we cannot be the ones to judge what makes you a more godly person than the next person. But what it does do is it makes me someone very visibly Muslim. And that in itself carries its own kinds of issues because that means that when I go out into the world, when I present in the world the way that I do, I have a very visible um, representation of my beliefs that influences the ways in which I'm treated sometimes. It influences the ways in which other people can be treated. And that's why I take it upon myself and, you know, I I call it the burden because it is a burden. It is a burden to always needing to be um, thinking about what, what does how I act while I appear this way give rise to, to certain ideas or perceptions. And I choose to use that positively. I choose to say I would like to act a certain way that gives rise to positive connotations of Muslim women as far as possible. But I also choose to live my life in my own way, not feel um, like I'm being a less a good Muslim or a bad Muslim or I'm just living my life as myself. Mm -hmm. And so as much as I'm representing, I'm also just being myself. It does sound like a burden of representation. And I think what you're pointing to is the fact that when in for example in the media space in which you work when the representation of muslim women is so small then there is this huge burden on you to be the good representative for your group Mm -hmm. but when you have more diverse and inclusive workspaces whether they're in the media or wherever else it becomes less you you become less of a person who stands out if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so if you if we encourage better and more diverse workplaces, then we will accept, be more accepting of different types of people, how they dress, what they look. And we won't assume that you can tell anything about a person based on how they look. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, as much as that's something that we maybe learn at preschool level, that you shouldn't judge mm-hmm. people by how they look. It's also something we have to constantly remind ourselves of because it's also something mm-hmm. that we all do every single day. We judge people mm-hmm. based on what we get at face value. And like you say, Jen, um, a workplace is a microcosm of the world. And so the more we have difference within the spaces that we exist in immediately uh, and the more diversity that we have around us and that we're open to experiencing and seeing uh, for for the richness that it brings into our own lives, the better an understanding we have of the world overall and of people mm-hmm. overall. And um, I mean, you know, you mentioned the media space. It's 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 really interesting because, um, I mean, in in my experience, I found that, you know, I've I've worked really hard to try and and situate myself as someone who exists within mainstream media space because otherwise, I find that it's very easy to just be seen as a Muslim journalist working for Muslim outlets, and I mean just because I am a Muslim person doesn't mean I should be confined to Muslim media only. That's always been something that I felt very strongly about. And I mean, it's wonderful now to see um, an increased 
amount of Muslim women within the media space. I mean, look at Kanita Hunter. She is just absolutely thriving in her career and she's doing so well. And she's a very visibly Muslim Muslim woman. Um, my my former colleague and, and boss, Khadija Patel as well. She was the editor of the MNG and um, co-founded one of the most amazing I'm biased, of course, media outlets in South Africa, the Daily Box. And there are countless others as well who are just doing amazing things. And I, if I think back to 10 or 15 years ago, because I'm lucky, I'm one of those people who's always known um, what I liked and what I was good at and always known that I would pursue the thing that I was passionate about. But if I think back to when I was a young girl and still in school and still dreaming up working in this kind of field there were very few people who I could look up to and say hmm I wanted to be like her you know I can maybe think of um Prem Reddy who was a brown woman who I would see on on TV and think oh she's super cool but I I can't I, I can't really think back of I can't really think back to anyone else who I could say oh I want to be like her definitively and I mean, I have four younger sisters. Um, two of them are still in school. And I see it every day. I see it all the time, how the things that they see every day, especially now with their generation being way more exposed to social media than than mine was and than yours was, so much of what they see and what they perceive informs how they view themselves. And so... You know, if I can say that just me being me is something that can hopefully let other girls like me know that there is space for them in this kind of industry and in any kind of industry that they want to break into, then, you know, that's what I'm all about. I mean, there's a very famous quote uh, that's we can't be what we can't see. And I think that's exactly what you're pointing to is the importance of being, you know, we're talking about the burden of representation, but we're also talking about the value of representation for oh, sure. younger people to see different types of people on television, to see the capabilities of all different types of people and to be able to dream bigger because of that representation. Mm-hmm. One of the things you touched on in your piece, though, were some of the um, reactions that have happened around the world to discriminate against Muslim women and Muslim feminists. So you give examples that are quite jaw-dropping in your piece around, you know, justifying the invasion of Afghanistan as a means to save the women there. And that in France, there was a burqa ban. I'm not sure whether that is still standing. Um, But that you say that these narrow-minded blanket ideas, quote, deny Muslim women their agency and stereotype them as oppressed, ill-informed and submissive, which is not very feminist at all obviously. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, this piece, as you say, it's, you know, three years old, at least, whether you have any examples of where there's been some positive changes since you wrote the piece, or, you know, people being more proactive about pushing back against these harmful ideas. I think something that's always positive, Jen, is conversation. And so one thing that's definitely just been taken to a, a new level um, since the piece was published and since the since the collection was published, um, it's just the amount of engagement and the amount of of people reaching out and saying, "I read your piece. Tell me more. Um, 
and and the amount of, of fellow Muslim women as well who are so interested in these ideas that I've presented or or these frustrations that I've expressed and realizing that there is a big community of us. Um, I think on on grander international scales, they are in 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 some ways they've been organizing for longer than maybe some of us in South Africa have in terms of working within certain spaces or within certain communities. Not to take away from the fact that, of course, there there's always been um, Muslim Muslim gender activists within the community, but I think you know it's it's also easy within our context um where we say we live in a democracy and where we have all these so-called freedoms it's also easy to say hmm but i mean why are you being ungrateful when you have all these freedoms and a big thing that's that's come about is is us realizing um especially now if we look at the broader uh, national conversation around GBV and and gender-based um, inequality that continues to fester. There, there is this heightened awareness of how there's so much work to still be done. And within our space as well, I think, you know, a, a lot of the time we find that in the Muslim community, people will be easy. People are ready to kind of um, say, but we have Islam, which gives us XYZ perfect way of doing life and no one can doubt that i mean no muslim can doubt that but no muslim can say that they love perfectly and the thing is we're humans so we're flawed by nature and that's fine and something that i think a lot of the time we need to um we need to kind of acknowledge is that we can recognize our failures and we should recognize our failures and our misgivings and we should be open to continually learning. So I did my my master's dissertation on a community radio station in South Africa, a Muslim radio station, and I looked at the ways in which it constructs masculinity. I looked at the ways in which ideas of masculinity are constructed from the ways in which Muslim women are spoken about. And it was it was really hard work to do because it's really hard to continually expose yourself to media in which you are dehumanized and constantly made out to be second grade in many senses um and to hear that kind of being justified by things that are taken out of context or that are culturally derived and not really have anything to do with religion and I've had some backlash to that, or but I've also had really positive response to that. And again, that takes me back to my first point, which is that the most amazing thing to come out of talking about this and all of this is heightened conversation, is people reaching out. And even the ones who are angry at me, even the ones who are like, why are you conflating feminism and Islam. There is no reason for the two to exist in one sentence. Um, you're actually doing something really bad. You're actually leading people astray. Even conversations like that. As much as I hate to say it, I welcome that because it's an it's an opportunity for engagement. And I must admit, sometimes I just don't want to engage because sometimes people are so intent on on um, 
making you seem like a villain for wanting to highlight the fact that there are so many inequalities that happen within certain communities. But again, it's all about having conversations about it because within communities, within spaces, that's where little things are always happening and little things give rise to big things. And so for as long as we, as Muslim people, as South African Indian people, as whatever it is, as long as within our spaces, we don't think we have a problem, we're only limiting ourselves. And so definitely the most positive thing has been conversation, interaction, um, and just kind of people being open to learning about new things, people learning that feminism is something that can apply to them and is not something that is only limited to um, normative liberal ideas of what, what feminism is. So it sounds like you went through a roller coaster there of ups and downs of people giving you feedback. I'm very glad that you had the strength to engage when you did and that you were respectful of your own boundaries when you didn't because it can be very tiring to fight the fight all of the time. And in your piece, you mention a couple of people who have influenced your writing, and I'm wondering for listeners who have not engaged with any Muslim feminists, whether there are any who are writing or, you know, sharing content that you would encourage people to engage with or watch online. I think there are so many uh, Muslim Muslim women scholars who've been doing amazing work for a while. But what I've also really enjoyed is getting into the work and the writing of um, younger Muslim feminists. So people who are uh, kind of of my generation or maybe a few years older who really grapple with the idea from a really um, critical perspective, who don't limit it to talking about the the framework, but who talk about it in relation to real life and real life experiences and perspectives all the time. Um, I think, you know, I, I mentioned I've got my younger sisters and I see it with them all the time. And if I think back to when I was their age, 10, 12, 13 years ago, I feel like I was such a silly, <laughs> silly girl compared to them because they are so, my my other sister and I call it the awakening. They are so um, kind of woke about the world and the issues around them. And it's great to see some of the stuff that they're doing. So, um, I mean, you know, there's someone I follow who's, I think she's like 18 or 19 years old, but she's brilliant. And she's within the South African space and she's doing amazing work. And she's also now started up um, a project which looks at, kind of building an archive of South African Indian Muslim women's stories. So she's called it the the Nanima Collective, which is, Nanima means maternal grandmother. And I mean, that's just one of the amazing things she's doing. So her name is Michaela Burani. There's also Huda Katebi. She's just, um, she's phenomenal. She's so clever and so funny and she writes about she writes from a very intersectional approach she critiques um you know systems of government systems of uh economics um all all systems she just critiques them and she does it brilliantly 
and with razor sharp wit and it is a pleasure to read and consume her work and then of course like my number one seminal text which is also i think something i reference quite strongly in my essay in the collection is um the good old leila abulugad's do muslim women need saving and what i love about that is it's an essay it's not super long it's maybe 3 4 5 pages long and it is so simple to understand it is so easy to realize what is wrong with the world once you read those those 4 5 pages because i think she very nicely sums up what the problem is um, and and how the power dynamics come into play when you assume that you need to save someone. And I think ultimately that's, you know, the thing that we're always fighting against, um, or not even fighting against, but, but rather advocating, is that we don't need to be saved from anything. We just need to be accorded the power and the dignity that we are entitled to have. Absolutely. Um, so based on what you've just said now, which is just fantastic, and the quote I gave in the introduction about the importance of intersectionality, it's really clear that you are interested in nuance and place importance on people telling their own stories. And now you are a journalist. So tell me about how these two very clearly deeply held beliefs are linked to your decision to become a journalist. And what are some of your career highlights? I've always known what I wanted to do. It was easy for me to recognize very on very early on that I loved words. I loved reading. I loved spelling tests. I loved writing. And I loved realizing the power of words. I loved being able to to see how people can react so strongly to words, negatively, positively, in ways that can change behavior. Um, how you can read words that will give you shivers throughout your whole body. And I realized this is something really, really powerful that I would love to have some kind of way of life dealing with. And every single day, Jen, I wake up grateful for the life I have where I'm able to do work that fulfills me wholly. Because like you say, it fully aligns with, with my values and my love for storytelling, my love for understanding and appreciating how stories inform the world around us and how there are stories in every single thing. Um, I was very lucky to to get a start in my career when I was 20. I, I, I honestly, when I approached my then boss, didn't expect her to tell me anything except for, okay, fine, you can make me coffee. Um, and instead, you know, she sent me out into the streets to the streets of Bram to interview people firsthand and to get a story out of that. And from then, I've never stopped kind of just doing that, going on, going on adventures, looking for people to talk to all the time. And that's that's what I do in my work. Um, that's that's the thing that I love about it, that I get to speak to so many different people all the time. In the past few months with COVID-19, I've had to speak to people who've told me jarring, horrible, heartbreaking things. It's been so sad to hear the stories that I've heard. But they they also, from a personal perspective, play a role in in making me so grateful and so thankful for the life that I have and for um, appreciating anything that I do have. So... 
after after I was at the Daily Va, I had a chance to to have a stint at the Mail and Guardian, which was a lot of fun. Um, it's it's an amazing dynamic newsroom to work in, and I was working with some of the best people in South African media. And I wasn't there super long before I got the role that I'm currently in, um, where I cover something I never thought I'd ever cover, which is business news and economic news and updates for an amazing publication, um, the Wall Street Journal, which I, I fell into almost wholly by accident um, through through networking and through someone passing my name on to someone else, that person realizing the work I was passionate about and the work that I enjoyed doing and choosing to give me a chance. And, um, you know, Jen, it's it's so amazing for me to sometimes think about how so much of the time I've just kind of thrown my hat into the ring, if this is the correct saying, and hoped for the best and how many times that's worked out for me. And I always encourage the people in my life to to do the same thing, to just if someone wants to say something nice about you to someone, let them. If someone's asking you for your CV because they think they know someone who'd be interested in seeing it, let them. Um, you know, I, I now have an amazing vantage point of the whole world because of the environment that I'm in and the people that I work with who are so committed to building me to, to be a better journalist. And I'm learning new skills every single day my passion has always been words my passion has never been numbers I can tell you that very frankly and yet now I'm getting the chance to realize how words and numbers in tandem create really compelling stories and it's something that I would never have um, thought about if I hadn't been kind of given this chance and so I'm really really grateful for where I am at the moment and so for listeners who maybe are thinking of a career in journalism or of a career switch to journalism, what would be some of the things that you would um, not warn, but give them advice on to expect or be prepared to expect or that you would want them to know before they start out on that journey? I think if people are interested in journalism, the first thing they need to know is that they don't need to study journalism. They just need to know how to communicate. Um, and if you're going to be in journalism, you're going to have to have a tough skin. That's something I learned kind of early on. And I think, and, and every journalist will tell you that. And I think, you know, for, for me personally, it's something I definitely had to develop because I'm, I'm, I'm quite a sensitive person at heart. Um, and you know, when you're speaking to people and they're telling you really, sad and emotional stories it's hard not to feel affected but I always have to remind myself that this is my job and I'm working in my professional capacity and so I have a responsibility to carry myself as such and so that is definitely a big thing um, having a, a thick skin and then just being prepared to really work to um, being prepared to to know that Things are not um, things are not always simple. Things are not always as you see them. Things are not always static, and so you have to just be prepared to be adaptable, to go with the flow, 
to understand that things are changing and to understand that things are not personal because sometimes your story will get killed. Sometimes you'll interview someone and think it's an amazing interview and that interview won't even make it into into a piece. And I mean, these are these are just little things and there are so many more, but it again, it, it comes back to the thick skin thing, realizing that you're a professional um, and things are not made just to offend you as a person it's it's above you and so you just pick up and continue because there's always a story and tell me a little bit about the role of mentors in your journalism career how have you been supported by mentors and what advice would you give to someone looking for someone to mentor them oh my word I would not be anywhere without the people who I've known um, along the way who've guided me and um, shouted at me when I needed it who've told me not to do something that I then ended up doing anyway and sometimes that worked out sometimes it absolutely didn't um, but it's always good to have people who understand the things that you're going through or to understand the challenges that you may face and be there to give you an ear or a shoulder or a pat um, in, or, you know, a hand that will push you in a certain direction. Um, so, so I have my, my editors from the Daily Box. I have people who I met at the Mail and Guardian and now people who I've worked with at the, the Wall Street Journal, all of whom have been central to helping me not hold myself back because a lot of the time we hold ourselves back because we have these inward beliefs that we are or aren't good at something and so we hold ourselves back from from trying new things and you always need someone to push you and say you need to try more things and half the people who I um, call my mentors now are people who I literally went up to and said hi you go you are going to mentor me um, because the thing is sometimes you're lucky that you know people around you who automatically will look out for you and sometimes you need to be a bit more proactive and say I like the work that this person does and I really respect them and I want them to help me and you'll be surprised just ask and people will be so happy and so willing to guide you along. I think it's important that you also take credit where credit is due. I think you've done fantastic work in writing. And I'm sure that if you were not also showing up to be mentored and to improve and to learn from what people have offered you, that they wouldn't have carried on supporting you. So don't forget to take the credit where credit is due. I have three final questions for the end of our podcast. Um, the first is, has there been any book that has inspired your feminism? Well, feminism is compiled by Jen Thorpe, of course. <laughs> um, but you know what? There, there are so many books I've read, fiction and nonfiction along the way, which have um, guided me kind of to the person that I am. Uh, definitely, like I say, again, I know it's it's an essay and not a book, but Leila Abulubad's stuff is just phenomenal. Um, so she she actually wrote an essay called Do Muslim Women Need Saving, which then got turned into a book. But even if you just read the essay, that will tell you all that you need to know. Um, Edward Said's Orientalism, something that changed my life. And I don't even mean that 
you know, in the dramatic sense that young people like myself sometimes do. Um, I think it's so empowering when you can realize for yourself that you are, you, you are viewed as an other because of a vantage point that has enabled for you to be viewed as an other. And so it's very empowering to be able to realize that there are multiple vantage points and that you need to be always be questioning vantage points. Okay, second to last question is, do you have a quote that inspires you or that you live by? You know, I definitely have a few kind of affirmations and things that I always kind of say to myself, but a a big quote that I, it was actually something I wrote on my glass door and then it it didn't come out when I tried to um, rub it out with a, with a, because of the marker, um, which is that productivity is not a measure of self-worth. And I think that especially for for myself and for a lot of very ambitious and very driven young women, you know, we, we kind of do this thing where we make ourselves or we allow ourselves to be defined only by our achievements or only by how much work we get done. And we see, sometimes we, we, we see time that isn't spent doing work whether it's domestic work that we're hoping someone is going to value or whether it's um, professional work that we're constantly looking to get done so that we can see our names in print or so that we can get acknowledgement and praise from people constantly chasing after that is exhausting and is also something that is not um, conducive to just living life as a human being. So as much as wanting to achieve and, and working and doing work that you love and enjoying your work are amazing, great, central things to living life, they're also not a determinant of who you are as a person and whether you are a good person or a valuable person. And so, again, productivity does not determine your self-worth. Mm. I love it. <laughs> so final bit, seeing as you're dispensing wisdom here, what is your final bit of advice for feminists on their journey? I, I don't know how qualified I am to dispense advice, but I will say that to anyone, I think you should recognize your own power within your own spaces. Um, a lot of the time, you know, feminism is not something that's linear any journey is not linear. And so that means that we all have our own challenges, our own setbacks, our own privileges as well. And ultimately, it comes down to realizing, okay, what power do I have in a situation? And how can I use that power? Sometimes you have you you may think you have no power, you may Sometimes people, and I'm guilty of doing this all the time, I'll feel so sorry for myself and I'll feel like I'm so helpless. And then I realize, but that's not the truth. Um, As much as, yes, I may be limited with X thing, I have so much of Y thing. And that's something I think, you know, I'm, I'm constantly reminding myself of and something I would constantly remind people to remind themselves of, which is that, they should always look for their power in a situation and always look at the ways in which they can wield that power because 
all of us have power, even the one, even those of us who think we have nothing. We all have something within us. And some, people will tell us we have nothing, but we have to recognize it within ourselves. And it is hard. And it's always, it's always going to be harder for some people than it is for others. But we can only truly kind of acknowledge ourselves because I have to also, you know, as much as I'm saying we need to find our power, I don't like the word empower. I think um, talking about empowering someone is, is, is kind of, you know, you take away from what is already there. It's, it's assuming that someone doesn't have power and that's never the situation. And so instead of talking about empowering someone, I like to think about how can we elevate someone? How can we lift someone up? And um, how can we acknowledge someone? So how can we elevate and acknowledge instead of empower? Because we can elevate and acknowledge people and that will help them realize their own power. I think that's a beautiful sentiment to end off our chat on. Thank you so much for making time in your very busy schedule to chat with me and for the work that you keep doing. You know, I think you really are an inspiration to watch and it's been fantastic to watch your career over the past few years. So congratulations and thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you so much, Jen. And thank you for doing this work. I think, you know, as much as you reminded me to be to acknowledge myself, I want to acknowledge you as well and um, give you credit for the work that you're doing to build something that is helping people in their journeys, whether it's journeys of healing, journeys of learning, journeys of, of finding new ways to forge new paths. And so um, big, big snaps for you because you're doing something very cool. <laughs> You are one of the cool girls that I that I wanted to be like when I was young, for sure. <laughs> you can find out more about Aisha by following her on Twitter at Aisha Dadi Patel or by checking out her articles on the Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>